episode 134 of the Mindset Game podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian, online training and nutrition coach, and owner of James Robert Fitness. Why not check out some of my free content at fitamputee.co.uk forward slash free dash resources. Each week on the Mindset Game podcast, we bring you an inspirational athlete, message, or expert talking about human optimization to teach you how to change the perception of your mindset and become 1% better. Make sure to share this with your friends on your Instagram story, on Twitter, or on Facebook. They can find this episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere that they listen to podcasts by searching for Mindset Game Podcast. And on today's show, I've got James Steele. He's the principal investigator at the UK Active Research Institute, as well as being the associate professor of sport and exercise science at Southampton Solent University. Um, and so, you know, someone could be given a fit bill of health and uh, and end up collapsing 24 hours later during a match, and uh, because something's been missed. So. It's it's a it's an area that yeah they're they're, they're very likely outliers. Um, in fact, you know by the nature that there's very few of these events that happen in the grand scheme of things. Of course, the media make things look as though they're more common than they actually are. Um, when you think of the number of people playing uh, football at that level worldwide and the number of events that happen, it's probably a very small proportion. Um, so they are by that nature outliers. Um, and understanding why those those things have happened, that's where good research comes in to try and sort of like figure out ways of screening for identifying them. And then um, I, I, the, the next question after that, though, is, is if you identify a player, um, what, what do you do? Do you, do you not let them play? Um, what if the player wants to play? And then it starts to become a touchy kind of ethical discussion. Um, and, you know, I, I, a lot of players are not keen on being screened for those sorts of things. So they don't want to be told that they can't play. Take a screenshot and tag at james.steely and at jamesoroberts11. Without further ado, let's get into today's show. So welcome on to the show, James. Hi, James. Thanks for having me on today. That's my pleasure. So before we delve into today's episode, James, for the listeners, can you explain how you got into your role within uh, both UK Active and your role at Solent University? Yeah, sure. So um, my role at Solent University um, was what I had first. Um, my, my background is I did an undergraduate in applied sports science. Um, I then moved into uh, a PhD, which was more of a kind of um, clinical rehabilitation-based PhD. So I did work with people with chronic low back pain and looked at exercise interventions for them. And um and I've had quite sort of like diverse interests, um, you know, across my sort of career so far. Far, I was saying to a colleague the other day, I, I, I keep on calling myself an exercise physiologist, but I seem to be involved in exercise physiology, biomechanics, psychology, and, and now more recently, my, my work has taken me more and more towards the kind of public health um, sphere, and uh, I'm doing more work um, in physical activity and, and kind of health more broadly. And at the beginning of the year, I, I took on the role at, um, at UK Active as principal investigator to kind of lead their, their research institute and the um, sort of academic work that they do. And how are past, for, for the listeners, how are past kind of cross? I've I seen a post that you posted on Twitter 
oh, the end of October, as I'm reading this on my computer, um, about uh, a journal based on uh, cardiorespiratory uh, cardio fitness being a strong predictor of mort mort mortality, sorry, yeah. more than smoking. How has that become the case, and how do you actually go a little bit deeper than that for the listeners? So, um, so this is kind of an, an area that, that started to interest me because, um, and it's been known for quite some time now, that actually um, fitness-related outcomes seem to be quite strong predictors of uh, morbidity and mortality. So essentially kind of your risk of, of getting ill and your risk of, uh, of dying um, of, of kind of all cause causes, um, you know, primarily sort of chronic diseases though. And... Um, and and people often look at it as kind of like a uh, surrogate marker of you know if if you've got higher fitness then um, they use it as a kind of marker of for how physically active you are. But even even independent of the amount of physical activity people do, fitness still seems to be quite a strong predictor. Um, and it's not just cardiovascular fitness; there's also a lot of evidence suggesting that strength as well um, is a strong predictor. Um, and now a lot of the research we've done has been focused around quite quite low volume, quite um, what we refer to as kind of like minimal doses of exercise um, to see what almost we, we, we were quite interested in like what's the kind of minimal amount you need to get a benefit from exercise. Um, and, and in the course of our work, we, we've realized, you know, of course, as most people are aware of, sort of high intensity interval training and, and becoming more and more popular, you can do very little exercise, but it needs to be quite hard. Um, and, and we think part of that is because um, hard exercise is what stimulates the improvements in physiological fitness that are strong predictors of um, morbidity and mortality. But James, why has there been that shift then from you know like the old school thinking of being in the gym for hours upon hours? Also, I know I know it's going to seem barbaric to some people to be in the gym more than an hour to the kind of this way of thinking to do no more than 45 minutes as a training session? Um, do you know what? It's, it's an interesting and kind of complex uh, area, you know, as to as to why that's kind of come about. I think there's lots of, um, there's lots of little things that have kind of slowly sort of led people towards questioning this kind of more is better approach and um, focus a little bit more on, you know, not necessarily how much people are doing, but what's the quality of what they're actually doing. And um, like I said, I think it's difficult to trace, but I think there are some key um, sort of things that brought this at least to the public's attention um, a bit more and made it a little bit more of a kind of topic for conversation um, in the physical activity for public health sphere. And that's, you know, the work that sort of came out of um, Professor Martin Gibala's lab at McMaster around high-intensity interval training and then back in, I want to say 2009, we had the Michael Mosley Truth About Exercise documentary, and um, and it, and from my my kind of like perspective, it feels like that kind of like really kicked things off. And then for the last ten years, there's been this huge uh, surge in kind of interest and in research around um, you know more intense uh, exercise and you know what what value it has and what place it might have within a kind of public health. Um, perspective, uh, not only just thinking about like you know the usual applications because it's been it's been utilised in kind of sport and sports performance for, for much longer, but it's it's taken a little while for those 
ideas to filter out into the more sort of public health sphere. But then the one you mentioned in terms of Michael Mosley, I think what was it? Three bouts of six minutes, I think it was. He did in a lab for for um, the general populace. That would be quite difficult to replicate because you need at least one person to be able to. How would I say this? Push you to supermax, so to speak, to be able to push yourself beyond uh, what most people would perceive as their maximum. So yeah, no, no, that, and that's that's a really interesting point. Point, and it's something that um, something something that's, that's interestingly Lee, what drew me towards working um, with UK Active and, and taking the role at UK Active is. Um, w- there's one of the problems with sport and exercise science and sport and exercise medicine is they get caught in what what um, uh, our, our, my colleagues and some of the members of our scientific advisory board have called the effectiveness trap, um, where we, you, you have broadly speaking studies that look at the efficacy of um, an intervention and those that look at the effectiveness, and you can kind of liken it to, to drug trials. So in a supervised setting where you know that people are taking the um, the dose of the drug that you're interested in looking at. You can see what effect it has on whatever outcomes. But that's a completely different ballgame to saying um, a, a doctor is going to prescribe uh, medicine to someone because you don't know whether they take it or, um, you know. So you, you, you get, it's it's a much more noisy environment to try and figure out those things. And there's lots of things that can impact the, um, what we call the fidelity of the intervention. And so, so that, that's that's a really good point, and um, it, it's it's an area that I've become more and more interested in as well. And I think we have a big lack of research um, to look at the effectiveness of these interventions. But that's not to say that there aren't um, key sort of like principles that we can gather from a lot of the lab-based research and then try to replicate in real-world settings. And actually, there is um, there, there there are labs now that have begun to look at more kind of. Um, practical applications of, of you know, quote-unquote high-intensity interval training. So you've now got um, labs which are looking at um, like stair walking as um, as an interval session, or um, you know incline walking on a treadmill, or, or something like like that. Um, so kind of more easily applicable um, uh, ways of implementing it. Like our, our focus has been around resistance training, which which actually, depending upon the manner in which it's done, could be um, considered an interval session itself. Um, and it's something that can be employed with no equipment, no special facilities or anything like that, doing just body weight training. But yeah, the, the, the key thing, as you said, is whether or not people can actually push themselves hard enough to get those benefits. And it's something that we're starting to take a, a key interest in because it's a really... Um, it's a really messy area in terms of what research there is and how good that research is um, because we, we conceptualize it with um, with the idea of like effort. How much effort does someone have to put into the exercise that they're doing? And we kind of think about anchoring that at, um, you know, when you're trying as hard as you can to meet the demands of the exercise, whatever that exercise happens to be, um, you know, that's when you perceive, or that is 100% effort. That's max effort. Um, and you should, in theory, feel like it's max effort. But, and we've done this in the context of resistance training, um, different exercise approaches and different modalities can make you feel more or less other perceptions, like how uncomfortable the exercise is, for example. Um, and so 
we think that in a kind of uncontrolled setting where people aren't being given um, instruction to think about these things and, and focus on effort rather than discomfort, for example, that um, people kind of automatically mix up their effort and discomfort. So if it starts to feel uncomfortable, people think, well, that must mean I'm trying hard enough. And and then that, that can start to potentially, in a, in a real-world setting, affect the um, effectiveness of the uh, of the intervention. Um, so it's something that we've got to try and sort of like think of ways around, and whether that's education or trying to tweak the protocols to almost like get people to train harder than they think they're training. Um, it, it's a kind of emerging area of research that, that's really interesting at the moment. But if we come to your first point, James, first of all, shouldn't people be a little wary in terms of when they start out on hit training? Be more specifically the one you mentioned with bodyweight training, because if they're doing it by themselves and be it, they can't see their perceived exertion. And this is talking from experience, uh, not me specifically doing the exercise, but seeing somebody pushing themselves beyond what probably the body feels as comfortable and maybe overdoing it. What would you say to that individual? Because if you don't have somebody to looking over you, be it a personal trainer, somebody with expertise, mm-hmm. I can kind of kind of see the warning signs that you're overexerting yourself and you don't have a mirror that you're performing the exercise in front of, what could you actually do to be able to tell that you're overdoing it? Yeah, I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think, think you're kind of alluding to like the idea that take a resistance training bout, for example, when it starts to get hard, people start to cheat on their form and they start to introduce the potential for injury. Um, and I think that's where... Um, and you know, it's it's actually there's, there's there is no research on injury rates across different exercise resistance training modalities, and um, so we don't really know. You know, I, I have a gut feeling that, for example, um, if someone's doing uh, doing body weight exercises at home, um, there's less chance of them injuring themselves, for example, than if they're they're under a under a barbell in the gym and they they get pinned to it. Um, so uh, there's there's potentially a bit more scope and safety for that, but. I, I, I think it's, it's a really tough, tough one. I think we need to um, think about the guidelines that are being given to people around how to do, do this. I think that people should be encouraged to um, seek out advice from trainers if they're if they're unsure of themselves. But then, and, and I'm currently involved in the actual in the process of um, the um, the current UK physical activity guidelines are being revised, and there's there's a, a lot of talk in the in the process between all the experts involved as to what the guidelines are specifically going to look like, um, not necessarily in terms of how much and, and how hard we, we say the exercise should be, but how what examples are we going to, be, going to be giving and what instruction on how to meet those guidelines are going to be given alongside them. And it's almost that messaging needs to be um, needs to be specific enough so that people can can follow it in a safe and uh, effective manner. Um, but also not be too complicated because not everyone is an expert in this. And if you start throwing jargon at people, then you know they're, 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 then they lose interest and they and, and they don't do anything. So it's a it's a fine balancing act when it comes to this uh, this sort of thing. Um, I, I, I'm over over time. I used to be really um, what's the word I'm looking for uh, a, a real uh, kind of like hardline, uh, you know. Um, like form police kind of guy with with exercise, and I was always very very conscious of 
of making sure that um, that people were uh, avoiding exercises that, that were potentially un- unsafe and th- things like that. But I think by and large, a lot of people are do to an extent know whether something is going to be dangerous or not. Um, and I think there's potentially the, the benefits of people doing something outweigh the, char- the, the negatives of them doing nothing. Um, so, but yeah, it's, it's a balancing act, like I said. But what I was alluding to, James, is more not the risk of injury, it was more so, you know, worst case scenario, somebody passed out because of the physiological response to, well, mm. the the brain shutting itself off from the rest of the body. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, so I can see what you mean, mean there. And I think, I think that's always going to be a risk with, with uh, any unsupervised um, exercise. And as with most most things, you know, um the the usual kind of uh, warning is if you if you don't feel you know, or, or you should should seek advice from your medical practitioner your doctor physician before engaging in a program of exercise just to check that there's no underlying because because you know most people aren't will not be aware if there's something under the surface that could be putting them at risk if they do a particular activity now it's the case with anything not necessarily just exercise um but I, I, I see the point there, but I think for, for the vast majority of the people, that's not going to be the case. Um, and so, one of the things we've um, we've done recently, we've done a little pilot study um, because we're quite interested in this idea of body weight training as being quite an accessible way of people getting um, uh, meeting the, the resistance training guidelines as, as part of the physical activity guidelines. Um, because most people don't have access or, or don't want to pay for a gym membership or go to a gym and train in that environment and that sort of thing. So it's how do we make it more accessible? Um, but at the same time, we know that with that type of exercise, you need to train relatively hard to get the benefits out of it. Um, so we've um, we've been taking some people into the lab and looking at the kind of physiological responses um, for getting them to, to do these body weight types of exercises um, using quite a low volume, so doing like a single set of repetitions um, and telling them to do as many repetitions as they can. Um, and, and normally in the lab settings, when we do studies, we, we get people to um, do what we call train to failure. Um, and when, when we do a supervised lab study and we're doing a training intervention, like when we say get them to train to failure, we make them train to failure. Like they literally cannot move that weight anymore. But in this case, we were more interested in saying, well, we know that like the harder you train, the more benefit you you get. Um, but we know in reality, if you tell someone, it's a bit like the drug uh, example, if you tell someone to go train to failure, they probably don't. So we were quite interested in saying to them, well, well we want you to do as many repetitions as you can. Um, but And then look at the responses without standing over them and like forcing them to get to that point of absolute failure. They stopped at what we would call kind of volitional uh, failure. Um, and, and we still saw quite considerable um, uh, physiological responses that would suggest they're getting a good stimulus from the exercise. They weren't training to a max effort, um, but they were um, producing quite a high caloric expenditure from quite a low volume of exercise. Um, we looked at a number of other outcomes that would suggest that you know, cardiorespiratory uh, system was getting a good uh, stimulus. Um, the muscles engaged in the exercise were getting a good stimulus as well. Um, and so it seems like like an, like an interesting option for us to then now look at rolling that out into a trial and seeing whether or not if we, if we actually, if we got a group of people and, and, and gave them this recommendation um, and, and then compared that to actually taking people into the lab and 
supervising them through that recommendation. Yeah, how effective is the recommendation to do it in and of itself going to be? Um, so that's kind of the next steps steps for us. But I, I think, like I say, it's, it's a little bit self-controlling in that most people will not push themselves that hard. Um, but we obviously need to be wary of the, the few people who will. But in your opinion then, James, would be the cl- closest you could come to that kind of training be either through forced repetition or doing negative but having somebody obviously alongside to be able to do forced repetitions would that be the closest you could come to a training method to be able to replicate that in in the real world um so i think that so so the use of like advanced techniques like forced repetitions or or even like um in in a setting where you're where you you're for example training with a machine or or some other external resistance a drop set or something like that um, are useful tools to get people to train to that little bit of extra effort if they can't for example get to get close enough to failure in that single set um, we, we have we have done some studies though suggesting that if you can get close to failure adding in those advanced techniques don't necessarily add any additional benefit. Um, but no, I think they, they're useful tools to try and push people a bit further. Um, and I'll give you one example. My, my colleagues in, in Germany, Dr. Jürgen Giesing, um, we, we worked with them on a study where we had people either, um, they did uh, resistance training interventions using single set methods. Um, one group um, trained to uh, what we called a self-determined rep max, um, which meant that they didn't fail. They just did as many complete repetitions as they thought they could. Um, so, for example, if they got to 10 reps and they completed 10 reps and they thought if they tried the 11th, they would fail, they stopped before trying the 11th. So they didn't actually fail. Um, and and we've, we've actually done a lot of studies as well showing that people tend to stop m- more than one rep away from failure when they think they're one rep away from failure. Um, we've actually got an interesting um, study where we deceived the participants into what we were actually looking at to look at that at the moment. Um Another group actually did train to failure, um, and then we had a third group that did uh, what's called rest-pause training. So they used a heavier load, and they did a repetition, and then rested for 10 to 15 seconds, and then did another repetition, and kept doing it like that, and then stopped again when they felt they had done as many full reps in that method as they could. Um, And interestingly, we saw that the group that didn't train to failure, I should uh, explain, these are trained participants as well, so this explains potentially this result. Um, the group that didn't train to failure um, didn't improve in any of the outcomes that we looked at, interestingly. Um, the group that trained to failure got the biggest improvements, but the group that trained um, using the rest-pause method had a kind of in-between effect for most outcomes. So they, they got, um, uh, uh, for most things, about half of the gains that the group that trained to failure did. So it suggests that using those kinds of methods, like force reps or rest-pause or, or a drop set or something like that, um, can help people maybe squeeze out a little bit of extra effort um, when they might not be able to if they were just trying to do a single set. And when it comes to it, to a certain extent, James, is it, uh, when when it comes to your overall perception of what you determine as a maximum effort, is it very subjective? Yeah. So and that, so this is really an interesting thing. We're it's an area we're we're really working on at the moment, and um, and interestingly we're. We're, me and my colleagues will be delivering a symposium on this topic at the American College of Sports Medicine's annual meeting next year. And um, I think you've got, you've got several um, uh, kind of levels of effort in, the way, in terms of the way we can conceptualize it, try and understand it. So 
you have this kind of theoretical construct of effort, and, and the way we think about it is um, in terms of like the actual effort required um, is the, the essentially your ability to meet the demands of the, or the demands of a, of a task, whether that's exercise, a mental task, or whatever, relative to your ability to meet those. Um, so, for example, um, if you've got a max strength of 100 and you lift 80 then it will feel like, or it will require 80% of your effort. Um, if you keep lifting that more and more, though, you will fatigue, so your max strength comes down, and so relatively it changes. So you can think almost in a quite sort of like mathematical way what the actual effort to do a task is. But that's different from how you as an individual perceive the effort required. Um, and there's quite um, interesting neurophysiological neurophysiolo- um, uh, mechanisms for where we think effort comes from. We think it comes from um, primarily it's the brain's um, uh, uh, central output to the muscles, essentially, to recruit them to perform a task. Um, and so, so in most senses, we think there's a pretty good matchup between actual and perceived effort. But then when you then add in, um, for example, in a study, um, how you measure that, you can't measure the effort directly in terms of the actual effort, you can't even measure the perception of effort directly because you have to ask that person to give you a perception of effort. And uh, there's there's a a really interesting study um, which looked at the effects of um, audience on perception of effort during exercise. And they had a group of young males do a a treadmill-based task um, and they asked them to give their rating of perceived effort during um, doing that task with a male audience versus doing it with a female audience. And surprise, surprise, the same task was rated as being easier when the females were watching. But <laughs> it makes me think, well, in sense of the in terms of the actual effort, that didn't change. It was the same task. They were the same people. We don't really know whether they perceived it as being easier or whether they just didn't want to say in front of the girls that it was hard. So it, it becomes, it's, it's a very subjective phenomenon that we're trying to sort of like, we have to think about very, um, very careful ways of creating studies to kind of understand this concept a bit better. And that's where things like, um, just like deception-based studies, like I explained, uh, I mentioned that we have done recently, where we, we were interested in looking at... Um, this idea of how good are people at predicting how close to failure they are, um, which in theory, you know, as, as the exercise gets harder, the, the, the idea is that you project how hard it currently feels, how hard you think it's going to feel. And then from that kind of, your brain figures out, well, I think I'll fail at about this point if it kind of projects out. Um, and so we, we, we recruit people in and, and we told them we were looking at something completely different, but what we were actually doing was matching up their predictions with, their actual repetitions to failure and and people are terrible at it really terrible at it <laughs> and even train even well-trained people are terrible at it um so it, yeah it's 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 an it's an interesting area that we're, we're learning more and more about at, at the moment but wouldn't out uh, external factors have a bearing on your one be your perceived uh, effort but then you're just your general effort altogether because you're going to have well this time of the year, your immune system is going to be that much lower anyway because you're training. But mm. are those going to have an impact on on results or, or not really? So, so I think um, 
there's a couple of ways in which it can can. So, you know, external factors broadly could just affect your preparedness. So if you're feeling if your immune system's down, if you're generally overtrained or fatigued or whatever, um, you know, your your current max ability is probably reduced a little bit. So the same exercise will feel will actually be harder and will probably feel harder as well. Um but I think another interesting thing is, is um, have you ever come across something called potential motivation theory? I haven't, no. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a, a theory by a psychologist um, called Bren, and, um, it's, it's, uh, and if you've not had him on, you should probably get Sam Marcora onto the podcast, who, who uh, is a big proponent of the psychobiological model of, of performance. And, um, and a lot of it is based around this this potential motivation theory, which is to say that um, you you as an individual will have a, um, a an amount of effort that you're willing to put into a task relative to what the task is you're getting out of the task essentially. Um, and one, once you hit that kind of what they call your potential motivation, which is the max amount of effort you're willing to put in, you'll disengage from the task. And so. The, the same can kind of be applied to training or exercise, uh, you know, sports performance, etc. Um, and so I wonder whether or not at different points in the year, different points in training cycles, external factors, stress, etc., could potentially also actually shift your potential motivation. At certain points in the year, you might perceive there to be greater value to what you're doing. So um, you're willing to put a little bit of extra effort in um, and, and it shifts up that potential motivation. So where previously you kind of got to a point that it felt like, oh, I'm, I'm putting in as much as I'm willing to put in, and it feels kind of as hard as I'm willing to go, you know, max for a set, for example. Maybe at another point in the year, because your potential motivation shifts, um, that same absolute effort feels easier because you're willing to put in more effort for whatever external factors. So maybe a competition's coming up and training starts to become, you know, you start to see more value in the training you're doing as opposed to in off-season, for example, where it might just feel a little bit like going through the motions. But then could we go one step further with that, James? When, when you are, be it, well, if I use my example because it's the easiest to, to, to portray out, um, be it at the elite level, you, you will train along other people. Uh, uh, I can't speak. Train along your other peers... So that's going to bring a component of competition. So is that going to have a bearing on the motivation because you kind of want to outdo each other? Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't see why it wouldn't uh, have that impact back as well. I think I think we're I think it's definitely likely to be impacting on um, some element of that kind of those levels of, of effort, um, whether it's it's directly affecting um, someone's perception or whether it's uh, affecting their potential motivation, how much effort they're willing to put in, or whether it's just affecting the effort that they're, um, they're saying it feels like, like, because this is where the rating uh, becomes an issue, because it could feel really hard, but they, they may say to their coach, now and now it feels, it feels easy because they don't want to be seen as, uh, as, as struggling in front of their peers. Um, but you'd be surprised at the number of... Um, uh, everyone jokes about uh, like the, the Borg RPE scale that 17 is max, um, and it's funny the number of uh, like professional uh, football or soccer players that we test who finish a VO2 max test and say that their RPE was 17, and they've just nearly fell off the back of the treadmill. And uh, and you think 
that was definitely 20, but they're not willing to say it was 20. They're willing because they want to, whether it's because they're convincing themselves that they feel they've got more to give, or whether they want their coach to think they've got more to give, or whether for whatever reason they want me to think they've got more to give, as though I'm someone to impress. Um, it's, it's, it's really interesting to see how that get kind of almost social phenomenon come into the measurements. That's a bit naive and a little bit, because, like, well, yeah, there is scope for you to improve. You say in 17 and you, you've virtually fallen off the machine, well, you physically can't go any faster. I feel that that's yeah. been the case. Yeah, and, and I think that's got, there's important implications to coaches there, because it's becoming more and more popular to use measures like RPE and session RPE and things like that, particularly in team sports, um, because it's a quick, easy measure for coaches to get um, and kind of surveillance uh, surveillance approach to the team and see how they're getting on how hard did they find those sessions and but there's 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 an element of trust there that they're getting good data from again the ratings are actually reflecting how hard they feel and and if the athletes are you know giving inaccurate or, or you know essentially lying about it then that's that's a problem for the coach because they might then change their programming based on on that and uh, actually it'd be going in the wrong direction so I, it's it's a tough one, and uh, and you know this is what I don't claim to be an expert in this at all. It's not my area. It's just it's very interesting. I think um, some of my colleagues would would, uh, would be better placed to talk about this. The whole kind of concept of uh, you know the, the psychosocial components of, of of team sport in particular, um, because of that kind of like competitive factor, um, you know they they have to be managed very carefully, um, and you know. There, there has to be a level of education and trust and, and understanding in the relationships between the athletes and the coach and, you know, why they're being asked to provide a certain, you know, for example, an RPE value and why it's important they give an accurate representation of that. Um, and if, for example, the co- coach knows that they don't, you know, they're, they're self-conscious about uh, other people knowing how hard they really found it, then maybe there's an approach to avoiding that by keeping things anonymous and just letting the coach look at it, these sorts of things. But then at the same time, like you say, um, maybe the the coach wants people, everyone else to know how hard everyone's feeling it to foster that competition and, and, and that kind of strive uh, for improvement. Um, but it's, it's difficult to, to know without being in that context and, and with that, that individual or that, that team, what's going to work best for them. And my penultimate question for you, James, obviously going back to the original question I asked you at the very beginning with obviously the cardiorespiratory being a good pre-marker for mortality. Obviously, oh God, I can't think of the footballer's name, but the one who collapsed on the field playing for Bolton. Are those athletes outliers then, being, being at the top level and being very, very fit? Yeah, absolutely. And this is where, and I know you've had Greg White on the uh, podcast before, um, you know, a lot, a lot of these kind of um, sudden cardiac events in, in elite athletes are are down to underlying, um, you know, pathologies and issues that they have. Um, and this is where um, it, it's it's a, it's a tough area because um, at, at the one on the one hand, you have um, you know events like that that um, that are quite sort of like emotive and 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 it, they raise calls for kind of better screening and, and things like that. Um, but there's a kind of dark side to screening that most people don't think about. And this is where good research um, is, is key to understand the value of, of screening for, for, for anything. Because um, I'll give you an, you an example. Um, when, when the lab was first set up here, we used to do a lot of cardiac screening um, before doing, for example, VO2 max tests. And we were 
we were told to, to, to stop doing that because the team here are not cardiologists. We can run basic ECG, uh, ECGs um, and find, see obvious abnormalities. But some of these, these um, abnormalities get missed on routine ECGs and need to be picked up by experts. Um, and so, you know, someone could be given a fit bill of health and, uh, and end up collapsing 24 hours later during a match and, uh, because something's been missed. So it's, it's, a, it's an area that, yeah, they're, they're, they're very likely outliers. Um, in fact, you know, by the nature that there's very few of these events that happen in the grand scheme of things. Of course, the media make things look as though they're more common than they actually are. Um, when you think of the number of people playing uh, football at that level worldwide and the number of events that happen, it's probably a very small proportion. Um, so they are by a, that nature outliers. Um, and understanding why those those things have happened, that's where good research comes in to try and sort of like figure out ways of screening for identifying them. And then um, I, I, the, the next question after that though is, is if you identify a player, um, what do you do? Do you, do you not let them play? Um, what if the player wants to play? And then it starts to become a touchy kind of ethical discussion. Um, and, you know, I, I've, a lot of players are not keen on being screened for those sorts of things. So they don't want to be told that they can't play. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's an interesting area. It's one that, that, that causes a lot of debate. And my final question for you, James, before we wrap up the episode, if you had to summarize what we've been speaking about today, into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Ooh, okay, that's a challenge. So I, I would say, um, when it comes to, to physical activity and exercise, um, some is better than none, uh, more is better than little, but also the quality is important, and focusing on, on putting in a decent effort, um, if you can get to max, great, but if not, just as close as you can, can safely, um, is the key to kind of like maximizing the benefits of a minimal dose of exercise. So once again, James, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. No problem. Thanks very much for having me, James. It's been my pleasure. If you like this episode, please do share it with your friends and do let James and I know what you thought of the episode by tagging us over on Instagram at james.steely and at jamesoroberts11 on Twitter and Facebook. Again, do check out my free resources at fitamputee.co.uk forward slash free dash resources. Make sure to check that out. The link will be in the description. You can find all the show notes at mindsetgame.lipsum.com under the category fitness. Once again, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.